we want to talk like qualifications, I'm grossly unqualified to be doing what I'm doing. You know, I'm I'm a six foot eight straight white male who had a really shitty mental health experience um, in my early 20s and came to understand that it was a masculine script that was harming me and have been on a learning and unlearning journey and sharing that with people. Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. Welcome, Jake. Thanks for having me, Mark. Yeah, good, really good to connect. And I really want to start by just jumping straight into the vision and the mission of Next Gen Men, the charity that you co-founded and are our director of. Yeah, for sure. So we are working towards a future where boys and men feel less pain and cause less harm. So that's our vision. And the way that we're working towards that is by engaging, educating and empowering boys and men around gender and equality in schools, communities and workplaces as our mission. A slightly strange place for an interview to start, but I've got a 13 year old boy and recently I ribbed him about wearing pink trim Nike trainers and I was reading your website in preparation for this podcast and it talked about unlearning and it talked about unlearning you know around stereotypes and what it is to be male and being comfortable as a man you know liking pink would be one thing being comfortable with your um, masculinity femininity um I'm I'm nearly 50 um talk to me about um you know like what masculinity means to you and do you find yourself still unlearning stuff oh, I'm, I'm learning every day um and uh i guess it's an interesting question um so i hope that your son ribbed you back um did what because- he didn't he didn't give a monkeys he literally was like i like these trainers i like i'm happy wearing these trainers to school um jog on dad and he and I was like and it just because I'm quite you know I'm quite enlightened I did women's studies at university I did some gender politics stuff and I've and it kind of was like where did that come from why did I rub him about his pink Nike trainers yeah totally I mean and it, it comes from a different generation like even for myself I think about you know probably the most like visceral bullying experience that I remember of school um I don't know if it was ever the same in in New Zealand, but like uh, professional wrestling was like a huge, well, I guess still is a huge thing in in North America. And um, I was wearing a WWE t-shirt and it was tie dye, but it was like half purple and half pink. And because it was a wrestling t-shirt, I was like, oh, this is so sick. Like, I'm going to wear this to school. It's going to be amazing. But then it was the colors that I guess mattered more. And I got really made fun of for it and was really upset and confused by it. And um, so that's always something that's kind of stuck with me. So, you know, good on your boy for, for uh, telling you to jog on. That's a, that's a new Kiwiism that I'm (laughs) I'm picking up. So that's cool. Um, But I think, I mean, how do I want to say this? Part of the, part of the reason we actually, the, the vision that I shared off the hop is an updated vision from this summer And our vision before was redefining and undefining what it means to be a man. And 
that was all well and fine. But when you say redefining, everyone is like, okay, I get that. But what's the new definition? Like, tell me the new box that we're going to stick this into. And that was kind of where we hoped the undefining piece would be where, where there is no definition. We kind of all make up what masculinity means to us ourselves and all multiple forms of masculinities are okay, right? And I think that's kind of where we're aiming with the work that we're trying to do. Um, because you know your experience and expression of what it means to be a man are different than mine, right? Like I'm 32, you said that you're almost 50, like there's a generational piece there, there's a geographic piece where we are in the world, there's um, you know, our, our parents and, and what they bring to the equation, the, the cultures that we grow up in, you know, Commonwealth uh, backgrounds versus, um, you know, maybe, maybe an Asian background or those kinds of things. Like there's so many little modifiers and variables that like for us to put men and boys into these narrow boxes, that's, that's really where the toxicity and the harm lies. Yeah, and, and that gender only being one of your things that we face or crosses that we bear. Um, so how do you guys operate? So you, I understand you create spaces for people to explore stuff, to talk. Like, what does the day-to-day look like of the charity? Yeah, totally. Obviously, you know, it's mandatory disclaimer of the the before times and the after times, right, with the pandemic of here. Of course. But um, <laughs> You know, in the before times, we ran after school programs for boys 12 to 14. Um, And the reason we chose that age group is that's really when they start to lose their innocence of boyhood and start to act like what they think it is to be a man. And it sounds like your son's going through that right now. And um, that's when we see rises in rates of homophobia, misogyny, um, you know, other kind of marginalizing attitudes. And and I think it's part of that idea that a man is, is to have some sort of power and to have some sort of dominance and that, that deep cultural socialization around that. But when you're that age, you kind of look around and you're like, you know, I don't really have any power. My parents tell me what to do. My teacher tells me what to do. My coach tells me what to do. And so the way they start practicing that is in and amongst themselves and their friend group. And they start differentiating from, from each other through those ways. And so we really wanted to intervene and, and role model better and healthier ways of, of, you know, being in relation with others. And so that was then. And then our kind of response to the pandemic um, has been pivoting online. So uh, it's still kind of a quote unquote after school program, but it's happening on Discord. I'm not sure how familiar you are with Discord, but it's it's predominantly a video game chat platform. And I mean, if we're going to be working with 12 to 14 year old boys, we better be on a video game chat platform. So that's been an interesting pivot. Yeah. Um, and then a couple years into kind of the youth work that we started with, um, our adult peers were saying, I love what you're doing. I wish I had something like this when I was a kid. And so we said, well, we don't need to be kids to have these conversations. So we started hosting community dialogues related to masculinity. Um, and so, you know, just last month we did one on masculinity and friendship, um, this upcoming or this month we're doing masculinity and law, um, you know, just kind of, uh, opening people's eyes to different ways of, of looking at it and, and, you know, the, the pros and cons of how it manifests in our society and culture. And, um, you know, normally we would be doing that in, in a pub or, or, you know, someplace where we could gather, but we haven't been doing that uh, of late. So we've, we've kind of moved that on to Zoom, which has been interesting as well, too, but uh, still really good. 
And I feel like you had a question in there. Do you know what? It's just around the people you hire. So they facilitate a group discussion and reflection and then, and then people come away with learnings. Is that right? And that kind of starts the process psychologically for them. Yeah. So and I, with... I think something that we do maybe a bit differently, sometimes these conversations can be quite like academic and um, we don't like to talk at people. We really want to talk with people. And I think that gives people an opportunity to um, really genuinely bring kind of how they're experiencing it, how they're thinking about it. And, you know, sometimes problematic things come up, but we don't necessarily say, oh, you're wrong. Like, you know, you need to think about it this way. We, we kind of dig into that. Well, why, why do you think that? Much like you asked the question of, you know, why you ribbed your son about wearing pink trainers, right? So what is the origins of that? Why might that have come up in your life? You know, what are the consequences of that? And really just kind of like unpack those things uh, versus kind of being prescriptive about it. And I think people really resonate with that. Brilliant. And hiring your facilitators, uh, is it typical that they have a kind of recent or past experience of exploring these issues, difficulty with them and then the right skills? Yeah, it's... Um... It's been a journey as well, too. Um, you know, it's not necessarily like a mainstream skill set, but it's not necessarily also one that like um, that is highly specialized per se, because like if we want to talk like qualifications, I'm grossly unqualified to be doing what I'm doing. You know, I'm, I'm a six foot eight straight white male who had a really shitty mental health experience um, in my early 20s and came to understand that it was a masculine script that was harming me and have been on a learning and unlearning journey and sharing that with people. Um, our youth program manager is um, a, like a, a career professional educator. So he's got, you know, a pedagogical background and, and whatnot, but he's just so passionate about engaging with young men it's, it's his life's work. Um, that's what he's, he's made for. And then our community manager um, did a degree in, in criminology. And basically all of her research papers ended with, we need to do better at engaging men before they become problematic. <laughs> and so um, that was kind of how she, she gained a passion for this type of work. Um, and then we do a, a, a lot of uh, efforts to, to just build capacity within people who are thinking about these things. You know, like I said, I don't think it is necessarily specialized. I think that there's certain values and principles that you should have in doing this work. For example, you know, we can talk about, you know, men's liberation and, and men feeling less pain and causing less harm, but we need to understand that, you know, men also cause a lot of harm to other people, to, to women and people of other genders. And so, you know, those people's voices and experiences need to be reflected in the types of conversations that we're having as well, too. Mm. And so you guys are operating in, you started in Ontario, but you, you're, you're wider than that. You're, at the moment, you're sitting in Vancouver. Yeah, we operate across three provinces, Ontario, Alberta, and British Columbia. Um, the pandemic has been really interesting for us as well. Obviously, lots of cons, but um, pros are that, you know, when you pivot online, geography doesn't really matter that much anymore. So we're starting to engage with people in different places and even down into the States as well, too. And um, 
realistically, like lots of organizations that do this type of work scale really deep in, in one location or one population. And um, it's been really ex an interesting experience for us. Uh, we're, we're spread kind of thin, but, um, you know, we've, we've kind of landed as, as almost a national organization in some sense, because we've done some work with the federal government and um, really want to see this movement grow across the country. Mm, fantastic. And if you don't mind, go back to your um, the start of life. So you're an immigrant to Canada and your life started in Czechoslovakia. What was your, uh, yeah, it'd be great to hear a bit about that and that journey. And also what were your male role models like? Totally. Um, so I think my immigration story is interesting because um, clearly I'm, I'm white, but being an immigrant to Canada and coming as, as refugees, essentially with nothing on our, but the, the you know, shirts on our backs and, and two suitcases and a toddler, um, we didn't grow up very privileged or anything like that. And so I think my experience of quote unquote whiteness and, and what that means has always been a little bit different as well too. Cause you know, my early years in school, I was, you know, the kid who brought weird lunches and got laughed at, uh, even though he was white, you know, I was the kid who, my board name is actually Jakub Stika, but I go by Jake Stika because it's it's easier to anglicize it, right? Mm. Um, so it's always been a little bit of a different perspective of being part of that dominant narrative, which I often wonder how that kind of framed my worldview on these things. Um, and I mean, like, I despite you know the stereotypes of like East European like stoicism and not really talking about emotions and feelings and stuff like that. Um, I think my father was pretty good. Uh, he de we definitely didn't really like talk about stuff, like definitely more now that I do this work professionally. Um, you know, he's, he's softened up in his older years as well too, but uh, really? yeah. yeah, but I, at the same time, he wasn't like a patriarch, you know, like he, he was a very equitable partner at home. Uh, he shifted his working hours so he could always take me to basketball, um, did, did his fair share of housework. Um, all those kinds of things. Um, maybe it was probably just the emotional stoicism that I kind of inherited from him, but not those kind of like patriarchal values. But if I look at like my, my maternal grandfather, he absolutely was that like that person. And, and that was the role that he played. And so that was an interesting learning. And, and then my dad's dad, and to, to maybe understand a little bit better about how he ended up, my grandmother actually was fluent in seven languages. And wow. so when you're in like communist Czechoslovakia, you don't get to travel, but because she had this skill set, she was a technical secretary and sent on diplomatic missions to like Uruguay and Kenya and stuff like that. So she was an amazing, amazing woman. Um, but that left my grandfather at home with two boys and, wow. and how, yeah. how untraditional that was for that time. Um, and I wouldn't say that, you know, my grandfather was like a transformative caregiver or whatever, but, you know, he kept them clothed and fed. And my dad was six years older than his brother. So he, he took on some of that caregiving stuff as, to, as well, too. But it just goes to show, you know, the different, you know, uh, familial paths that you can follow or learn from. Mm, 100%. Uh, and so you found yourself um, later on having some difficulties around um, you know your your masculinity or your agenda. You but this is 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 this heading towards your sort of journey as an athlete because that's what you went on to do. Yeah, I mean, I I grew up in jock culture, like uh, you know, um, 
in high school, uh, I went to a Catholic school. So like there was nobody quote unquote out in my school. If I said the word trans, it was probably followed by sexual uh, and feminism had never crossed my mind. You know, like um, I was I was the stereotype for sure. Um, and then I, I was talented and tall enough that I got to play varsity basketball at university. And um, while I was away in my first year, I was, I was really struggling with my mental health and um, my coping mechanism was binge drinking and partying. Um, and uh, that caused my, my grades to tank. And then I was academically ineligible and I, I lost my ability to, to play basketball in my second year of university, which to date had been my entire identity. And um, so I was pretty miserable with that. And I ended up flunking out of the first university I went to, transferred schools, found a better program, bounced back, uh, was on the honor roll, was named a Canadian all academic varsity athlete. So you're like, okay, like this guy's back on track. Uh, 22 years old, I'm, I'm massively depressed again. And um, ended up in therapy because my, my coping mechanism at that age was self-harm. And um, in therapy and, and kind of the healing journey, I really came to understand it was this, um, this masculine script, you know, of, of you got to be tough. You can't show emotion. You can't ask for help. That was really damaging me. And, um, you know, just going through the, the, the journey of, of seeing that, learning that. Thankfully, I had some, some good, you know, friends and, and a solid partner at the time. And um, yeah, I was able to, to kind of heal my mental health, but, but that really stuck with me and, and was definitely the, the seeds of, of next-gen men in there. Brilliant. And brilliant that you recovered from it. And do you, do you remember it being the frontal lobe realization of what was dragging you down and, you know, not being able to or hitting drugs and alcohol or, or not doing sport. Do you, do you now look back and go, I had some reflections or you really didn't know what it was and you kind of didn't know a way out. Really didn't know it was and didn't know a way out. I just knew Mm. that like, you know, the measure, the external measuring sticks of my life were, were decent. I had, you know, maybe a little bit of family issues and stuff at the time, but, but there was no reason that I should inherently be as miserable as I was. And um, just the inability to talk with anyone about it, you know, like I, mm. I did have good guy friends, but, you know, we didn't have those types of conversations. I, um, my partner, you know, I, I would like cry myself to sleep in her arms and like say things like, you know, I'd never told anyone this before or whatever. And, you know, that's all well and fine, but like the pressure that women feel when men unload those types of things on them and, and yeah. are tasked with that emotional labor. And, um, you know, as I was really struggling through that, um, my co-founder, who's one of my best friends from university, Jamal, um, he'd been through some stuff. And as his best friend, I'd been some, through some stuff with him. His, uh, his 13 year old brother died by suicide in 2007. And so, uh-huh. you know, that was someone that I could also confide in who, who'd kind of, you know, dredge the bottom and we'd been through that together. And yeah, just having that, that other next person lightened the load and, and really coming to understand that, you know, that vulnerability and that support was something that men needed. Yeah. And before the podcast, we kind of reached out and you very, you very, um, I, I really uh, thought it was a kind gesture, but you, you know, you sort of acknowledged I'd lost a friend 
to suicide. Did it ever get that close for you? Did you ever contemplate, um, do you think? I don't think so at that age. I mean, um, I had some struggles in, in high school and I think it's something, you know, a lot of young people go through ideations and questions of, you know, would anyone care if I was gone? Um, I could think about that from high school, but at, the, at that point in university, I don't think I felt that, but it was, so, and if I'd kept down that path, I don't know, because like the self-harm piece was like, I was hurting myself because I didn't want to feel these other things. So I'd rather just feel pain. Right. And so that can take you a really bad way. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, is there a chance because suicide rate in New Zealand is horrendous and a lot of those masculinity issues um, that you talked about in Canada were, were, were similar here around a really um, singular option for being a man or being a boy. Um, but I, you know, I kind of when I reflect on a f- so friend of mine um, killed himself and aged eighteen, and then two months later, uh, another group friend from the same group did the same and the same way. And I look back and kind of think, a I never would have been ballsy enough to do that, which probably sounds weird. But I also wonder if um, there's a sort of uh, romance to that as well like or it's just a hard but easy way out it's, it's both things it's kind of you know because it's more typical and in, in boys isn't it or men um, and why we take that option well here's here's a really twisted thing about this men are three out of four suicides in in Canada and I'd imagine that it's probably a similar proportion in New Zealand it is it is yeah um, but women attempt at a higher rate but the difference is that men choose more lethal means. And here's the twisted part. How emasculating is it if you fail at taking your own life? Wow, yeah, right? good point. Like, yeah. like, I'm such a screw up. Um, sorry, is it okay to swear on this podcast? Yeah, yeah, cool. Okay, I'm such a like fuck up. And I screwed up like taking my own life. Like that is so embarrassing, right? Like I could see Mm. that thought pattern there. And Mm. so like, you know, that that's why it's, it's these really graphic and, and no way back ways that we choose. Whereas like for women, it's often like a plea for help. Right. And we don't even know how to ask for help properly in, in that. Right. So yeah, we just end up. 100% like it's 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 so tragic how deeply wrapped up in it we are Mm. so I remember my experience was um you know some clear unhappiness uh although definitely no talking about it amongst with both those friends um and then there was a sort of um there was some form of level of kind of acceptance it felt like or, or some kind of uh joy that suddenly arrived which preceded the you know killing himself and also there was a closing off like we had the school um dance and looking back he was going around doing group showed photos with um you know with all those different groups of friends a sort of a closure see you later um remember me when i'm gone and you know sort of that was at 18 i'm now nearly 50 and you know you're a long time dead and if we just talked about it is my reflection um so I love I love what you guys are doing because the, t- the talking about it would um, you know because you know you might be struggling but if you get it off your chest, hundred percent changes things I think. 
a huge part of my healing was okay. So I would, I had all this stuff bottled up inside of me. I was, you know, at, at that point in my life, I was this like, su- like tall, like super fit athletic, you know, whatever guy and, and, you know, externally everything looked great. And then I'm, you know, crying this stuff out with my partner, telling her things I'd never told anyone before. And then after like the therapy piece and getting to a place, I identified, okay, I, I do have some, some mates that I can, you know, trust and, 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 and I know that they're going to not think less of me for this. So basically like taking some of my, my shit, you know, the, the stuff that we never tell anyone and, and saying, Hey, here's some of my shit, hold this for me. Here's some of my shit, hold this for me. And like divvying it out among like three or five guys. And so, you know, if, if you call the one person and you're like, Hey, you know, that thing that I'm, I'm struggling with and they don't have the capacity to be there for you, you have other outlets as well too. And it's not just that you're like dumping your stuff on other people, because when you, when you free up some of that space of what you're carrying, what you're hiding, what your burden is and, and dish that out, you can take that on for other people too. And we're all holding a little bit of each other's stuff. And so you know, just this work and stuff that I've, I've done over the years. Um, Some of my friends, you know, I'm, I'm maybe the only person they've told that they had a miscarriage and they don't know how to feel about it because, you know, it's, it's the woman that's upset about it and it really hurts them too. And they don't feel like they can talk about it because, you know, it's not their body. Um, You know, I've, I've had people talk about, uh, you know, their, their marriage issues or, or job issues. Like it's, you know, when you just become that, that person and you, you're vulnerable and, and kind of sharing that two way, it's, it's lighter for everyone. Yeah. hundred percent. And I just, I sort of think perspective, like one thing, one good thing about being an old person is, um, you know, you, you gain a, you can gain a bit of perspective. It doesn't necessarily save the day though. Like it, you know, you still need to do what you just said, which is share the load. Um, but yeah, so you're, so you, um, in terms of your career, I, there's some things just reflecting on that for a minute. Um, you've, you clearly, from what I can see, have a bit of an entrepreneurial um, kind of interest and, and passion. And one thing that really jumped out is you've, you've done some stuff with, or did an alternative MBA with uh, Seth Godin, which um, I thought was fascinating. But is, is that world kind of interest, of interest to you? A hundred percent. I've had uh, an eclectic career. Um, you know, I, I played semi-pro basketball until I was the ripe old age of 24 and retired. Um, then I, you know, came back to Canada and, and um, got a job in oil and gas as a business analyst, which, which was just awful. Um, and then I, I made the leap and I worked in, in kind of the startup ecosystem and I led business development and sales um, for several startups. And um, that was even just part of the catalyst of, of you know, next gen men starting because there was um, an article I'd read about a, a, a similar young men's program that I thought was inspiring. And, and then I'd been fundraising for Movember for five years. And they had a call for proposals out for new ideas to change the face of men's health in Canada. And so, you know, working in a startup, I fancied myself entrepreneurial and I said, here's an idea, here's a funding opportunity, let's pitch. And so that, that buddy of mine from university who lost his brother, uh, who was working with at-risk youth, um, 
you know, kind of like, I think for him, it was very much like he wanted to be there for boys like his brother that he couldn't mm. be there for. Um, mm. You know, we, we pitched this, this idea and, and, you know, eventually we, we got it and they gave, you know, $150,000 to three knuckleheads who'd never done anything like this before. And so <laughs> that was kind of the origins of it. But um, yeah, I, I, I still kind of, you know, was doing it off the side of my desk for the first couple of years. And uh, then I made the leap full time into it. And I think it's been a big differentiator as well, too. Um you know, the nonprofit charity world has this like scarcity mindset um, and even just some of the like funding structures and, and you know, legal support structures and whatnot are, are incredibly constricting. And so I'm very passionate about, you know, social enterprise and, um, you know, marrying concepts across disciplines. Um, and, and, you know, I think, I think, I'll, I'll, I'll wind up with this, like the things that nonprofits and charities are often tackling are some of the biggest, scariest, most prob problematic issues in the world, right? Like, you know, next yeah. is tackling patriarchy. Other people are tackling, you know, poverty, capitalism within that. Other people are tackling, you know, white supremacy and, and racial relations. Like these are, these are huge, huge issues. And we, tell these organizations, hey, here's your, your shoe strap budget, make, make do with what you can. Oh, and by the way, we have, we have no appetite for risk. So please deliver on the things that you say you will on this grant application. Yeah, 100%. And mm. so like, you know, being in that startup world, like there's people cutting $40 million in venture capital funding for a stupid internet of things juicing machine, right? And like, these these similar you know venture capitalists or people who have the money to throw out are often philanthropists and then they have zero risk appetite for these huge huge issues in society and so for me like i want us to try things that will fail you know um i don't want us to cause harm necessarily but like hey, like people have been trying to like end gender-based violence or engage men and boys for a really long time and it hasn't worked. So like, let's, let's bring some innovation. Let's bring some iteration. Let's do things differently. We were quite like super heavily grant driven and um, it was causing me quite a, a bit of angst. Um, we did have, we did launch a social enterprise. Um, like again, it's not a legal entity. It's, it's more in spirit um, through our kind of workplace initiative and working in, in male dominated industries around gender equity. And, um, you know, that was going all well and fine. We had our best year last year. We had our best year uh, in the quarter preceding the pandemic. And then we lost eight months of work. Right. And so the pandemic has really pushed us to diversify our revenue streams. And it's actually pushed us to be even more innovative and entrepreneurial and, um, you know, now I'm tasked with telling our board, you know, how are we going to build back better? What's, what's the vision, right? We survived. Yeah, yeah. What are we going to do moving forward? And, and there's that question of like, are we going to go that charitable route or are we going to go kind of the self-sustaining route? And, um, you know, I think, I think at least for the time being, it doesn't mean that there's not a hybrid path moving forward. We, we kind of got to get off the fence because, because, you know, when you sit on the fence too long, your butt hurts. <laughs>
Yeah, like that. And as we move towards wrapping up, um, what, you know, sort of battle, personal battle between um, making significant money in life and having a really comfortable life economically and, and doing this non nonprofit social enterprise piece. Um, have you got a side hustle or is uh, you, you're, uh, you're just comfortable with where it's going and, and uh, where you're going? Um, you know, right now, again, I think the pandemic has, has changed some of the calculations on this. Um, I, I joke that we're six years into a 10 year overnight success story. And so <laughs> I think that uh, there's still some grind and some hustle ahead, but um, I feel really good about it. And, you know, I may not have uh, equity or exit velocity like a traditional startup founder, but like, you know, not to toot my own horn or anything here, but, you know, when, when there's a calculation of, okay, who are the leaders in Canada around engaging men and boys around these issues, you know, and you're in the top five, let's say, like, to be top five in a country in anything is, is quite the honor. And so, you know, there's a lot of social capital and, and ability to, to do a lot of really interesting things throughout your life from that, when you build that kind of um, position. So yeah. I think I'm, I'm just riding it out right now. It's, it's, it's challenging. I'm, I'm definitely a builder. I'm not a sustainer. And we're, the pandemic has definitely re knocked us back to a building phase, phase. And, and once things get back to like, you know, this insurance policy and, and this hiring thing and whatnot, yeah, that's, yeah. that's just going to be awful. And it's going to be time for yeah. me to go. But yeah. Um, yeah, right now, right now we're building. Yeah, brilliant. And just, I'm just curious, like Seth Godin, what, what was he like? Or did you, was it more his team you met? It was more his team. I mean, uh, the Alt-MBA was great. Uh, again, a silver lining of the pandemic because I've been, you know, a Godinite or whatever we want to call that for years and uh, had my eye on the Alt-MBA, but I was always traveling or I didn't have time or, or those kinds of things. But then, you know, being stuck in the corner of my living room, um, I was able to, to imagine myself doing it. So um, took that on. It's absolutely a sprint. Uh, it's 13 projects over 30 days. And, you know, they say it'll take, it'll add, you know, another three to five hours on your regular workday. And, and they didn't lie about that. Um, so, you know, thankfully my, my partner put up with me, um, and we ate a lot of takeout that month, but, um, it was, it was amazing. And, uh, I will, I will credit this, um, you know, the revamped vision, um, that I shared it off the hop of this, um, is thanks to the alt MBA. Um, you know, there was a module in there with, with Simon Sinek start with why, and, and I'd seen that video before, but I'd never really internalized it about next gen men. And, um, you know, I, I came to realize that over the years, we, we kind of stopped talking about the why and we kept talking about the what and the how. And so I wanted us to get back to that why and it feels really, really strong right now to be working from that place again. Um, and then our new uh, book club pivot, um, you know, was was originally uh, an allyship project that I just kind of started as Jake and, and not the organization, but you know, seeing some of the uptake there, I kind of made it a, a product through the Alt MBA and we saw 67% growth quarter over quarter on, on that product alone. And so that's really exciting. So, um, you know, I, I just think 
you know, marketing is also maybe a bit of a bad word sometimes because it feels like, you know, you're saying you want to trick people into buying something or doing something that they didn't originally want to. But, you know, Seth, I think is such a, a, a sage around marketing and what it could be around storytelling and, you know, people like us do things like this and finding the people who, who are interested in what you're trying to do. And so I definitely highly recommend it to anyone thinking about it. Yeah, awesome. Um, hey, absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed the conversation. Um, thank you. It'll be good to stay connected. Yeah, thanks so much, Mark. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. I hope you like what you're hearing. Please subscribe and leave a review.